0: This is the Siecla. Supplemental 14. Emigrants. Welcome back, everyone. I'd like to start off by apologizing for the fact that this is another supplemental episode instead of the next planned regular episode. I've heard from some of you about how frustrated you are that I've been releasing a lot of interviews and other bonus content lately instead of more researched episodes. And trust me, I get it. I want to move the narrative along as much as you do. Here's what's up. What you're about to hear is a recording I've been keeping in my back pocket for a long time. It's a talk I gave at the Intelligent Speech Conference last summer, an online event with the theme of escape. So my talk, called You Can't Go Home Again, was about the French émigrés, the people who fled abroad during the Revolution, and in particular, what their experience was when they came back to France. I've intended for a while that this would be my episode for April 2022, for a reason I'll tell you about shortly. But my planned March episode, The Doctor Nairs, got derailed by some real-life events. I just got a new day job. And I've also got a litter of six newborn foster kittens in my attic. So while this next new episode is written, I wasn't going to be able to record and edit it before April 1st. Rather than push my March episode into April by a few days... I figured I'd just flip-flop by schedule and release the finished April episode now. It's not ideal, but in the long run, you'll get the same content you were going to get, just in a slightly different order. So why was I planning this live episode for April? Well, I need to prepare my presentation for an upcoming event that some of you might be interested in. From April 22nd to 24th, I'll be a guest of honor at an online conference called Barricades, which is devoted to Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables and as impact. I'll be participating in at least two events. At 1.30 p.m. Central Time on April 22nd, I'll be taking part in a panel discussion with Nemo Martin of the Bread and Barricades podcast, and Professor Brianna Lewis of the Les Miserables Reading Companion podcast, about our experiences podcasting about this period of French history. At 2 p.m. on April 23rd, I'll be giving a talk called why the Restoration Matters, about how this understudied period of French history shaped Les Mis and the world. Besides my sessions, there are more than two dozen other panels and talks scheduled. These include research presentations by academics about French history and literature, and also fan-driven discussions of things like Les Mis cosplay and fan fiction. So if any of that sounds up your alley, check it out. The conference is entirely online and runs from April 22nd to April 24th. Tickets for barricades cost 10 British pounds, or about 13 U.S. dollars at current exchange rates. Any profits left over after covering the conference costs will be donated to the nonprofit Just Detention International, which works to end sexual abuse of prisoners. You can register and find out more information at barricadescon.com. In the meantime, here's the audio of my talk from last year about French émigrés. This was originally delivered live, from notes, rather than in a studio from a script, so there are rather more ums than you're used to from the SIECLA. You may also notice I was working with a worse microphone than I am now. This was originally delivered with a slide deck, so as always, visit the slash supplemental14 to view a full transcript of this talk along with period images. That transcript was produced by Jen Fuller. In the audio that follows, you'll hear me interact with a host. That's Cyrus Rodell of the Revolution One podcast. My name is David Montgomery, I'm the host of the SIECLA History Podcast. Today you've heard a lot about escape, uh, that being the theme, and uh, a lot of it talks about uh, fascinating and daring escapes. But for the next 20 to 40 minutes, so I, I want to talk about something else, which is what happens after you escape. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about the French Revolution and the thousands of uh, so-called emigres who fled the country. This is, this is not the dramatic adventure story, the Scarlet Pimpernel smuggling aristocrats away from the guillotine. This is the, the less dramatic, but uh, I would argue more interesting story of how people go on living, coping and adjusting to change circumstances. Uh, in some ways, that's the spirit of my podcast, The Siecla. Uh, I cover the history of France that people usually skip right over, the 100 years in between Napoleon and World War I. Uh, But I'd argue that this ostensibly boring period is actually incredibly interesting. It's the the period in which the modern world was born. Uh, Similarly, while the dramatic escape from the guillotine may be more Hollywood-ready, I think the story of how formerly privileged people uh, deal with their reduced situation uh, might be more relevant uh, for uh, general history for people who aren't in life-or-death situations. Uh, So I'm going to start off with a little bit of a quick overview of uh, the emigration. Uh, You might be aware that France had this little thing called a revolution. The uh, monarchy was overthrown. Lots of people were guillotined. This is incredibly oversimplifying. But as part of that, uh, the revolution and the reign of terror, uh, you had a lot of people who felt that for their political or social reasons that they were not going to be able to survive. Uh, They stuck around. They were going to go to the guillotine. There are other people who maybe weren't necessarily in imminent danger of uh, losing their life, but who were unwilling to accept the revolution, the changes they thought were unacceptable. And and both these groups, you have people who leave the country uh, uh, for the safety of of other places, uh, whether it's physical safety or moral safety. So who were the emigres? There is... An incredibly complicated and vibrant and still ongoing scholarly literature to this day debating trying to figure out how many people there actually were who took part in the immigration. And this is really hard, in part because uh, some people left for a couple months or a year and came back, while other people were gone for a generation. Uh, but uh, perhaps the best estimate is that there were maybe 130,000 people or so who fled France. These were people of, of varied social status, they went to uh, very different places. So the stereotypical émigré is the noble, the bewigged aristocrat fleeing the guillotine. And this is partially true. There were some 20,000 French nobles who emigrated during the revolution, and this includes the most famous ones, uh, the most socially prominent, wealthy, famous émigrés, the ones who were kings and dukes and bishops. Oh, not the bishops. We'll get to them in a second. Uh, And again, there's a a lot of debate about uh, how many émigrés there were and how many nobles there were. But uh, some people estimate that there were perhaps fifteen percent of all French nobles uh, left the country, and that a significant portion of French noble families had at least one member leave the country. A lot of times, uh, you know, the the male head of household would emigrate, and uh, the the women would stay behind because they're seen as being less in danger, or someone needed to stay behind to take care of the the property, et cetera. Uh, But with one hundred thirty thousand people fleeing France, and twenty thousand of them being nobles. That means that only a fraction of the emigres were nobles. So who were the rest? Well, a lot of them were clergy. Uh, The Revolution, again, vastly oversimplifying, tried to control and then later destroy the Catholic Church. Uh, About 3,000 clergy were killed, uh, uh, often in gruesome ways during the Revolution. Some 20,000 left the the priesthood. And about as many as 40,000 clergy emigrated, which would be about 25% of all the clergy in France. Uh, Now, many of these were lower-level clergy, uh, so they were less socially prominent than the aristocrats. They get less attention, Uh, but uh, they were far more numerically, uh, uh, far more of them numerically, both uh, in absolute terms and relative terms. And if you've done the math, then uh, you know by now that the majority of emigres were neither nobles nor clergy, but commoners, members of the the so-called Third Estate. Uh, these were by far the the least socially prominent group for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, many of them were just servants who just were coming along with nobles. Others were peasants or sailors who may have hopped across the border when things got hot and then came back a few months later. Uh, and, and perhaps most importantly, uh, while you know, 15% of nobles left and 25% of clergy left, less than 1% of the third estate ultimately emigrated. So as a as a social force, it was just a much less significant group. And uh, while mentioning this, you know, the, the, the nobles are often overrepresented as the uh, face of the immigration. I say that as warning because I'm about to overestimate nobles as the face of the immigration and the rest of this, because there's, there's simply more historical material about them. So I also want to emphasize that uh, there were lots of differences within the emigres and not just of social status. There's a stereotype that emigres were all reactionary ultra-royalists. And in, in, at the time and since, a lot of people have used emigre as sort of a shorthand for reactionary, treating the two groups as as one and the same. And of course, not all ultra-royalists emigrated, and not all emigrés were ultra-royalists. Emigrés were probably disproportionately reactionary. Uh, The the kind of person who was most likely to leave France was the kind of person who had those far-right politics. And some people uh, went to the right while in emigration. So uh, one example uh, you can see here on the right is uh, a fellow named uh, Mathieu de Montmorency, Uh, who was a young aristocratic revolutionary on the left side of the National Assembly. Uh, But he was driven into exile as the revolution radicalized. And when he came back to France in 1814, he was a hyper-religious, ultra-Catholic, reactionary, Uh, ultra-royalist. His experience was not alone. Uh, A lot of people, the the experience of uh, being surrounded by fellow emigres, of of watching from abroad what was happening to France, uh, only hardened their position that... uh, Ah, uh, the whole revolution was a disaster, but uh, many emigres mod- were moderate or even liberal. Uh, people like Talleyrand was an emigre for a while. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette was technically an emigre. Uh, he fled the revolution because it was uh, getting uh, too radical, and he was in danger. Uh, the uh, Duc d'Orleans, uh, who was the son of, whose father uh, changed his name to. Uh, citizen citizen equality uh, as a sign of his commitment to the revolution. Uh, He was also an emigre uh, who spent a lot of time traveling uh, in the United States. But uh, as another example, emigration meant a lot of foreign nobles had experience of, for example, Britain's more liberal culture and politics, and a lot of them came away impressed, thinking that France could do to imitate that. So as I said, emigres went everywhere. uh, Austria, Russia, and the United States, but London was sort of the epicenter. Uh, you can see here a, a political cartoon from Britain at the time uh, showing a bewigged uh, aristocrat uh, uh, meeting a stolid uh, John Bull, the representative of the British people. People went where they went for safety. Uh, Britain, obviously, was being protected by the English Channel, and the English Navy was uh, less vulnerable to attack. But uh, they also had money, and they Britain provided foreign subsidies, as did many other countries. So you could get paid uh, subsidized in the same way that uh, many countries today provide some subsidies to refugees. But these subsidies weren't enough, and uh, a lot of these newly poor no- nobles were forced to do something truly horrendous, uh, which is work. Uh, you know, These are people who've been living off their income from their estates for a long time, but the French government uh, took steps to stop ambergris from benefiting from their assets. They uh, uh, seized the assets often, they uh, stopped uh, money from moving overseas, and so you had a whole host of uh, incredibly prominent dukes, duchesses, uh, uh, counts, uh, who were forced to take up fairly menial jobs. The, the Comtesse de Sassivelle, uh started a business making straw hats. The Marquise de La Tour du became a linen worker. The Duchesse de Ganteau, uh sold paintings. And the Duc d'Orléans, who I mentioned, who would later become king of France, uh, worked as a teacher. I now, mean, It was possible to go too far. Uh, you know, uh, Making hats was uh, seen as tolerable, but uh, one uh, noble uh, was court-martialed by his uh, social club and expelled for the crime of becoming a servant. Which is seen as just too degrading, uh, much more degrading than, uh, than making hats. Uh, but eventually, uh, the danger receded, and émigrés started to go back home. Uh, even into, into the 1790s, you had some people returning home uh, as the governments rose and fell in Paris. But especially once Napoleon took power, uh, he took efforts to try to br- bring émigrés back. So in 1800, there's an, uh, an edict that said all émigrés who hadn't taken up arms against France were welcome to return. Uh, In 1802, uh, even the ones who fought against France were allowed to come back to France. In 1801, uh, Napoleon struck a deal with the Catholic Church, which uh, brought a lot of the the clergy back, who had fled because they were unwilling to accept the revolution's religious changes. Uh, But there were a few diehards, uh, several thousand, who remained in exile all the way to the end until Napoleon fell in 1814. Uh, in 1807, there were uh, 1,461 émigrés in England, of whom 808 were laity and uh, the rest were clergy. Uh, but still, the, the alacrity with which most émigrés returned at the first possible moment was a little bit embarrassing to the true believers, the ones who were going to refuse to go back to France until the the Ancien Régime was restored. Uh, the, the leader of the émigrés in England, the uh, ultra-reactionary Comte d'Artois, was basically forced to give uh, returning emigrates his blessing because he was advised that they were going to go back regardless. So he'd better make it look like he approved if he didn't want to turn them against him. So these emigres came back to France. And so this is what I want to really focus on after sort of laying the groundwork for, for what happened here. Uh, whether they came back in 1800 or 1814, uh, emigrates generally returned to less money, less status, and less power than they had had before they left. So let's focus on that money first. I mentioned how the the revolution had taken steps to prevent the assets and the money of the uh, emigres from being sent to them overseas so they could benefit. And a lot of of it was from confiscating property. The revolution confiscated huge swaths of uh, land owned by the Catholic Church, uh, as well as there's a law that meant that if you emigrated, uh, your property back in France could be forfeit. So uh, most of these emigres had some of their property confiscated. This ultimately ended up being up to one-fifth of all noble-owned property in France. Uh, So that was bad enough. You came back and your property was gone. Uh, On top of that, uh, noble privileges were abolished by the revolution. So before the revolution, nobles had been exempt from a lot of uh, taxes. Uh, One estimate was that about 5% of noble wealth was taken by taxes before 1789. Uh, After the revolution, there was a uniform land tax that fell on everyone of around 16%. So much higher taxes. Uh, Nobles had also received money uh, from so-called feudal dues, which were uh, ancient privileges that they had the right to extract from their peasants on their land. So they might have a right to confiscate a share of their peasants' crops. They might have a monopoly on the use of the village's mill or olive press. They might be able to charge peasants for the right to transfer land or to get married. And there was uh, what was known as the corvée, which was the right to force your peasants to uh, work on your lands for... Uh, a certain amount of days per year, building roads or doing other sort of labor. And all of these were abolished in the revolution. So uh, before the revolution, you'd had uh, income come from a certain number of areas, from your these feudal dues, from uh, France and your land, et cetera. And now all this was gone. So that meant that many, not all, but many of these emigrates came back home to being almost as poor as they had been when they were in exile and having to make hats or or whatever. Uh, one estimate was the average noble family was about one third poorer uh, after the revolution than before. That the the average provincial noble family saw its annual income reduced by a third, from around eight thousand francs before the revolution to about fifty two hundred francs per year after. But it's important to keep in mind when talking about this one third reduction to fifty two hundred francs per year that the average peasant farmer in this time might earn three or four hundred francs per year. So, while these emigrants were poorer. Uh, they were not exactly destitute. Uh, one example, we, we talked about uh, the Marquise de la Tour du Pin earlier, uh, who became a linen worker. Uh, she lamented that the revolution, quote, ruined my father-in-law and our family fortunes never recovered. She estimated that her family's income had been slashed by 58,000 francs per year. But of course, that still left them with 22,000 francs per year. There's a lot less, but still probably in the top 1% of uh, French society. But even nobles who weren't quite so rich, and there were a lot of them, uh, uh, would lament, heard to lament when they were preparing to go back home, where shall I go to hide my poverty? It was, it was deeply embarrassing to be an uh, impoverished noble because being of noble blood and being rich were supposed to go hand in hand. Being in debt was one thing, but being actually poor was something else entirely. Uh, some nobles were were so embarrassed that they just stopped acting like nobles. They pretended to be commoners. They stopped using their title, their seal, their visiting cards, uh, because it was less embarrassing to just seem to be an ordinary commoner getting by than to be uh, a count uh, who was penniless and living in the shack. Uh, uh, de La Troup de pin uh, who I've mentioned before, said that, that her family had been, quote, forced to contrive a living, sometimes by the sale of the few possessions remaining to us. And sometimes by taking salaried posts, Uh, you can sort of hear the disdain dripping from uh, her voice there at the thought of having to work for a living. Uh, Being an exile is one thing, making hats, but once you're back in France, uh, the idea of having to take a a position for the salary was deeply humiliating. Many of the nobles who still had some money uh, tried to use it to buy back their confiscated property, Uh, or uh, they found people who were willing to loan them money to do so. Uh, Sometimes these buyers agreed to sell, uh, which restored the the pride and income. But uh, though a lot of property did return, uh, some people lamented that uh, uh, all their efforts to keep themselves afloat were in vain. Uh, Whether or not they had money left, these returning emigres suffered an intense loss of social status. Uh, The the clergy, which had previously been— Largely independent, uh, funded by vast landholdings and a direct ten percent tie that they could impose on the population, they are now employees of the government. Noble titles were legally abolished by the revolution. When Napoleon finally brought the, his own noble titles back, that meant that the old nobility now had to share their titles and th- their status with new nobility. And finally, people who had been feudal lords now find themselves being merely landlords. Instead of having special social rights, they were just rich collecting rents, Uh, and many commoners took great pride in showing their new legal equality with their former masters, uh, including the ultimate indignity of uh, suing them and taking them to court over various disputes. Finally, the uh, returned emigres found that they had a lot less power. All the ancient privileges and influence were gone, the the regional parliaments that uh, had given many nobles uh, a voice if they wanted power, they had to work for Napoleon, and uh, Napoleon could always decide that he didn't like you anymore and was going to fire you, or worse. The famous writer Chateaubriand found that out when he published a pamphlet attacking Napoleon. The emperor shut down Chateaubriand's newspaper, seized his property, and almost arrested him. But still, many former émigrés were more circumspect, kept their heads down, worked under Napoleon, even if deep down they wished that the Bourbons, uh, the family of Louis XVI, were still ruling France. And then comes 1814, and the Bourbons come back. Napoleon is defeated, abdicated. The Bourbons return, the last emigres come back to France. And they find themselves, finally, uh, both the ones who just came back and the ones who'd been there all along, finally had new access to power, wealth, and status. Uh, the church had new prominence, new resources. Uh, they got more funding, There's a determined drive to recruit new priests, uh, to give them more money, to uh, re-evangelize the population. The restoration government had a chamber of peers modeled on the House of Lords, uh, which is hereditary appointment that had a handsome salary. Uh, emigrants took roles in uh, uh, political organizations, for a movement called ultra royalism uh, that, that sometimes controlled the elected chamber of deputies, took a role in shaping national power. Uh, Louis had a royal bodyguard. It was staffed by men with, whose bloodlines were rather more impressive than their military records. Uh, there are civil service jobs now available. Uh, 70% of Restoration Prefects were members of the noble class. And again, not. I'm sort of conflating nobility and emigrate here. Uh, as I said, not all uh, nobles emigrated, not all emigrates were nobles, but uh, th- this is the, the most prominent group here. And in general, whether you were an ultra-royalist or more moderate to the, the Restoration was uh, good news for the kind of person who had tried to emigrate. There were exceptions, of course. Finally, there were, there were military appointments uh, available, uh, not as it was before the revolution when only nobles could become officers, but a lot of emigres were able to get uh, cushy jobs in the military. And I want to highlight one example here because it's particularly telling. Uh, a fellow named uh, Hugues de Roy de a the noble emigre, and in 1814, after coming back to France after uh, a generation abroad, he was appointed to command a frigate, despite the fact that he hadn't put to sea in two decades. And on his very first voyage, he uh, crashed his ship into a reef, killing more than 100 people in one of the most infamous shipwrecks in European history before the Titanic. Uh, You might have seen this image of the aftermath. Uh, But despite uh, all this new social power and privilege, all these jobs that were available, it was never enough. Uh, For every emigre who was given a sinecure, uh, many more were denied jobs as they wanted. The uh, restoration kept the Napoleonic nobles, so the, the, the old nobles still had to coexist with these new up-jump parvenues. Clergy were, despite their higher prominence, were still state employees. The feudal dues were gone. The confiscated lands were never returned, and the Ancien Regime uh, in a whole was never restored. The restoration was, despite many people wanting it to be, was always more of a compromise with the revolution than a repudiation of it. Still, uh, a lot of these emigrates felt that the government was now on their side, or at least ought to be, and sort of threw around uh, their perceived power. So a lot of nobles and clergy alike uh, tried to pressure the owners of their confiscated property to give it back. Some clergy uh, refused holy sacraments to anyone who still owned confiscated property. There are some areas where nobles still lorded over their peasants like before. i uh, addressed them with the informal to pronoun, like they were children. Uh, There's one restored noble uh, who we're told treated his peasants like slaves, quote, woe to whoever didn't remove his hat while speaking to him, for a blow with his walking stick soon knocked off the offending headgear. This wasn't universal, but it was was common. There's a famous song from the period that ran, see this old marquee bloke treats us like conquered folk. And it's, it's impressive that that rhyme managed to translate over from French to English. Always glad when that happens, it makes my life much easier. Uh, but despite all this, there was no putting the genie back in the bottle. France had changed for good. Those efforts to recover the confiscated land, denying the sacraments and all that, that was deeply unpopular. It sparked a huge backlash, which ultimately, uh, contributed to Napoleon's return in 1815 on a wave of unpopularity for the Bourbons. This didn't last. He was defeated at Waterloo and exiled again to, uh, St. Helena. Uh, but, uh, this all remained unpopular and, uh, Louis' government, despite uh, many people wanting to return the land, was never able to give it back. There was ultimately in 1825 some uh, compensation, some taxpayer money was used to compensate people who had their land confiscated, Uh, but this was sort of seen as a half measure. Clergy continued to be state employees. Uh, Nothing that the emigrates wanted, they were not able to get back what they had before, and this was deeply humiliating by people who thought that their time had finally come and they, they should have had it back. But I want to close uh, by noting uh, something that was maybe not always so easy to see at the time for the people going through this, that many of these emigres and their descendants lived life of wealth, power, and privilege after coming back home. It was just not the kind they thought they deserved. Uh, And from from a distant perspective, it's easy to see uh, on the one hand that many of these people were doing just fine for themselves, but also of course that, you know, In our time, you can earn $70,000 and be a perfectly fine salary, and so is $100,000. But if you go from $100,000 to $70,000, that's going to upend your life a bit. So it makes sense that uh, people had difficulty adapting to their drastically reduced circumstances. But this uh, definitely contributed to a lot of instability in France. There's resentment of the emigres. Emigres resented people right back. Uh, There are governments that rose and fell, uh, conspiracy theories, secret groups. It was all very dramatic. Uh, and I don't have any more time to go into it. I've already gone longer than I intended. Uh, if you if you like what you heard here, uh, you can listen to the Siècla, which is an, uh, my ongoing podcast telling the story of uh, France from eighteen fourteen to nineteen fourteen. You can also visit the website where I have uh, full annotated transcripts of every episode. Well, thank you, David. Uh, we already have a question from Andrew who asked that: How did the non-noble emigres fit into the restoration debates, like national lands? Uh, so it really sort of depended. Uh, in, in the popular uh, in in the, the writings of the time, uh, most of the vile, uh, the 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 anger is directed at the nobles and the clergy. Uh, like they are the most prominent, uh, they're the, the wealthiest. I mean, yeah, nobody really cared that much except maybe in your village if you were a peasant who had left the country for six months or something like that. Uh, but if you were the Duke of so and so, then uh, what you did uh, impacted a whole lot of people. Uh, so it, it's sort of a, it's a question of perspective. If you're telling the story of an individual or the, the, a small village, then, uh, yes, yeah, so these decisions that ordinary members of the third estate uh, were, are deeply important for history uh, from sort of a social history perspective. But from a, a political history perspective, uh, these uh, uh, common or emigres were uh, much less significant as players. So it sort of depends on which, which approach you want to do historically. Great. Uh, so next question from Daniel. Uh, are there still open claims today from emigres? Uh, no. Uh, th- that 1825 uh, uh, compensation package, the so called uh, emigres billion, as it was called, deeply unpopular, but it sort of worked. Uh, it, it settled a lot of the, the outstanding claims. It gave nobles um, money that many could use to buy back their property, maybe at a premium if people didn't want to sell before. Uh, it also meant that the people who'd owned that property now finally, for the first time, felt secure that the the government wasn't going to take it away because now there'd been this compensation, and that this was this huge sort of festering sore of people were terrified that uh, the government was going to try to restore to seize seize back this land, which uh, it was a, a continued you know Louis the eighteenth swore up and down repeatedly that no, we're not going to do this. And we're, we put in he even put in the constitution that this land was never going to be returned. But uh, people still don't believe it, and there are still instances of decades and decades after the fact of uh, politicians accusing uh, nobles uh, long after the, this time period of uh, plotting to recover the uh, their confiscated land or of uh, plotting to reimpose the ten percent tithe. So it, you know it, it remained a, an ongoing political issue, but generally speaking, it, it was on a mass poli- a, a mass political issue after the eighteen twenties. Great. Uh, so Stephanie asks, do you have any episodes specifically about the children born abroad, but who moved back to France with their parents later in their childhood, third culture kids of their time, so to speak? I, I don't have any episodes on that. And those actually are not super visible in the sources. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, in the sources who were young men uh, and young women uh, at the, uh, when they went into emigration. And you know, came back twenty years later as adults whose lives have been shaped in many ways. Uh, one one of the common experiences was that uh, many of the all the king, French kings of this time, for like a, a forty-year period, were huge uh, Anglophiles. They loved Great Britain because they'd spent uh, their formative years of their life uh, in exile there. Uh, also, of course, they recognized that from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, France couldn't beat Britain, so they might as well join them. But. Uh, there were definitely lots of uh, 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 instances of people uh, whose lives were deeply shaped by being em- uh, emigres, of the experience of being poor, of the experience of living in other cultures. Certainly uh, knowing English was was common. There was a, a ton of uh, cross-channel uh, visits by members of the upper classes of both countries, in part because so many emigres had lived in England, uh, spoke the language now, and uh, had good contacts there. So Cynthia asks, do you have any idea of how many or what percentage of the ancient regime peerage went extinct? I mean this is a, a complicated question because the, the the ancien regime didn't have a, there was no formal registry of who was a noble. Uh but there's there's a huge informal effort both before the revolution and after the revolution uh to create unofficial uh peerages, uh, books that accounted who the uh, sort of who's who a uh, Burke's peerage for for France. Uh, And there were lots of different private groups. There were huge feuds between publishers of different uh, competing books of the peerage. People sued each other, accused each other of being frauds. So-and-so claimed to have noble backing but wasn't. Uh, Some of these were basically uh, uh, monetary scams that you had to pay to be listed. Uh, So there's all sorts of efforts to to try to track this. But generally speaking, it was – unless you were of the sort of the the grand upper nobility – it didn't make much of a ripple if your family died out. Uh, most people d- didn't care, and it was also uh, over the the sort of thirty years after the revolution, after Napoleon, uh, there was uh, a, 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 it was fa- fairly easy to fake being a noble. To you could just start calling yourself instead of, uh, for, for example, uh, Honoré de Balzac, the famous writer. He was born Honoré Balzac. He, he started y- using the, the so-called noble particle, the "de." in there, which makes you sound like a noble because it made him sound more impressive. And there's no law against that, uh, generally speaking. Lots of people did that. If you've read uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, a major portion of that plot are uh, commoners who are pretending to be nobles uh, because they have money and uh, they sort of manufacture a, a fake noble identity and no one really cares. Obviously, like if people did care, there were, uh, it was a huge scandal if it was found out. Uh, but it, it was relatively easy to do. Uh, no more questions from the chat right now. Uh, I have a question though. Um, you've talked a lot about the influence that the emigrate uh, that the immigrant community played in French politics. Uh, what impact did they have on the politics of the countries they emigrated to? Yeah, That's a great question, and there's something I thought about adding to the presentation, but ultimately and probably correctly decided I didn't have time for. Uh, So uh, uh, the best evidence we have is for Britain, where there's the most emigres and uh, the the freest press. So you have a lot of contemporary accounts uh, published of uh, reactions. As you might expect today, seeing how refugees are treated in uh, uh, first world countries, it was controversial. Uh, Some people didn't like that the British government was paying a subsidy to uh, exiled Catholic priests. Uh, That was uh, uh, seen as uh, backing popery in some areas. Uh, and there was, uh, that uh, image of uh, the uh, uh, the enraged—it's called the enraged dancing master—that uh, uh, cartoon there uh, is making fun of the uh, the exiled French uh, noble. Uh, the, the 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 cartoon has a joke about the uh, uh, Britain uh, uh, that trying to enforce a uh, tax on hops with a pun on uh, the plant and uh, dancing. But so there, there was some resentment, but. Uh, most sources seem to find that, on the whole, the emigres were accepted. Uh, many of them were welcomed in—the uh, the, the aristocrats were welcomed into high society uh, in, in England. Uh, There's certainly some influence. Uh, there are there ties that were forged uh, between British nobles who met uh, the French exiles, which would then prove lasting into the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, and, of course, all these emigres helped— Ah, uh, provide a spur for the countries they were in to not compromise, to keep fighting Napoleon. Uh, it, it was embar- it would have been embarrassing for Britain to make a permanent peace with Napoleon when they were also playing host to uh, Louis the Eighteenth in exile and his whole family. It seemed that they had obligations uh, beyond what they wanted to do. So the the emigres sort of uh, constituted a spur to uh, to to not compromise and to not make peace. Thank you again for listening. Remember to register for the Barricades Convention, April 22nd to 24th, if you'd like to hear me and others talk about Les Miserables. That's at barricadescon.com. Instead of blathering on more, I'll just wrap this up and get back to working on the next episode. Join me very soon for episode 29, The Doctrinaires)